This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, White House Communicators Unite. Jen Psaki, former Deputy Communications Director in the Obama White House. And Tony Fratto, former Deputy Press Secretary in the George W. Bush White House. Join the conversation. We'll talk too big to fail, game change, and the power of a presidential phone call. I'm joined, as always, by Joshua King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com, and by Polyoptics contributor Arun Chaudhry. Now, Arun was official videographer for President Obama, and Josh King, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role that I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, as always, it is great to have you here. It's great to be with you, Adam. Big week this weekend as we are on the air uh, all through Saturday. Tonight, on Saturday night, 9 p.m., HBO, the premiere of HBO's Game Change. The motion picture dramatizing the book by Mark Halperin and John Heilman that was such a bestseller, seen as such a follow-on of Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes. I went to the premiere last week, Adam. That's right. The beautiful people got an advanced look, Joshua. Well, I I did not walk the red carpet. I sort of snuck around the tent, but they were giving out free popcorn and Diet Coke. I was very happy and availed myself, and also went to the Four Seasons for the schmooze party afterward. It was definitely New York and Washington mix A-list. Excellent evening. But you know, Adam, it was uh, it was a terrific film. Those who've read Game Change know that it's about uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and John McCain and Sarah Palin. But to just fill two hours, they put aside the relatively benign story of Obama and Clinton, focused only on the moment that the vetting team, those that are assigned to go out and find a potential vice presidential candidate, A.B. Culvahouse and his team, along with Steve Schmidt, uh, and Mark Salter, longtime McCain aides, sort of happened upon the new governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, fell in love with the way she looked on YouTube, rushed a five-day vet, brought Governor Palin in a Learjet from Alaska down to Sedona, meeting with Senator McCain. Uh, and let's see if we have a clip from the movie. Senator McCain today reshuffling his most senior campaign staff desperately need a game-changing pick. And none of these middle-aged white guys are game-changers. So find me a woman. I will be honored to accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States. You know, they say truth is stranger than fiction, and there's been a lot of talk about this movie being uh, predominantly fiction, but you you had given it a rave review and you enjoyed it. What was the reaction of the politicos and the communicators in the crowd? Well, to be completely transparent about the reaction, there is a certain crowd, call it the Morning Joe MSNBC crowd, a bunch of more centrist Democrats and Republicans who all tend to get along a lot better than people at the extremes. And so there were 
you know, all of the all of the people who you generally see on MSNBC in the morning on both sides of the aisle, and everyone was standing up cheering because basically Halpern and Heilman are people who uh, fit in with this crowd very well. They're, I must say they're friends of mine as well. But the direction by Jay Roach and the screenwriting uh, by uh, Danny Strong really brought it to a new level because these are the guys who were behind the dramatization a few years ago for HBO of Recount and it is one of the best campaign films ever made and you know it's it, it is natural for partisans protecting their principles to almost uh, pre-vet a movie or a book and declare it dead on arrival but and history will uh, will record probably and Tony Fratto can probably uh, shed more light on this later that John McCain was probably going to be doomed anyway based on the way the economy was going in the summer of 2008. Well you've just brought up the name of our first guest uh, somebody who uh, I served in the Bush administration with uh, Tony Fratto who is today uh, founding partner of Hamilton Place Strategies here in Washington, D.C., but more importantly served as an assistant secretary at the, U- at the U.S. Treasury Department and is the uh, principal deputy uh, press secretary, a deputy assistant of the president of the Bush administration, uh, and was living through the reality that the country was living through while the campaign and game change was going on. We're really lucky to have Tony Fratto, who is an uh, outstanding political communicator and uh, consultant in Washington, D.C., joining us. Welcome to Polyoptics, Tony Fratto. Thanks, Adam. Josh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Great fun. Uh, as we as we think about uh, political communication and polyoptics, I had the uh, opportunity, as I mentioned, to work in the White House with you, Tony Fratto. Uh, what goes on behind the scenes in the White House, preparing the president and dealing with what goes on day after day, dealing with the narrative uh, of the headlines and. The, doling out information to the press. This is what you did for a living and, and did really well. I want to ask you right off the bat, how is life in the civilian realm for you? How is it now that you have left uh, the front lines of American politics? It, it's uh, Actually, it's I'm having more fun, I think, than um, than I should be allowed to have. I and see you on I, TV I, more now than ever. I'm yeah, a big I'm a, CNBC fan, yeah, and you were there all the time. I'm a CNBC contributor, yeah, and so I, which I'm required to say anytime I go out that I'm a CNBC contributor, and uh, and I, I love it. And for the you know for the first time in my uh, in my career, I get the opportunity to say what's on my mind rather than uh, you know speaking for other people or writing uh, you know helping to write uh, uh, messaging for for other people. So so it's a lot of fun for me. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't uh, um, you know I didn't have communications as my vocation when I started off. I was uh, I was actually you know an economics guy and. Uh, I thought that's where I, where my career would be, yeah. and I and I fell into communications. So now I get to take that you know all that uh, that knowledge and and background that I learned uh, working in the policy space and and academically and and bring it to uh, the you know current economic. I want uh, our audience debate. here at Polyoptics uh, uh, on POTUS, Sirius XM one twenty four, to understand what I've been talking to Josh about, which is that there's another movie. Uh, too big to fail. It was out there. Now, Tony Fratto was not uh, a character in this movie, but you should have been, because you lived that financial crisis uh, beginning in 2008 and carried all the way through. Well, I guess it really it was yeah. on your radar and dealing with it in 07 through 08. Um, when you see politics um, becoming uh, creative art in, mm-hmm. in the form of small screen uh, movies. Especially when you think about uh, 
too big to fail. Are the optics something that, that people will take as pure fact? Is, is the movie version what people believe really happened? And what's your take? You know, so I think, um, you know, and I've said this to, to Andrew Ross Sorkin, the author um, of, of, uh, of Too Big to Fail, uh, that, you know, I thought Andrew really did an amazing job in that book. And I actually think that uh, HBO really did a terrific job in presenting uh, the book. Uh, when you're dealing with incredibly complex subjects and a lot that happened in a very tight period of time to be able to you know help to educate your audience and talk about these complex issues and get the personalities right and get the personalities uh you know playing their roles the way they need to to move the story along i thought they did a really terrific job now that's not to say that there weren't some things that we you know a bunch of us got together and you know we watched the movie um, all, to, all together, right? And uh, and there were things missing from it. Like, again, I've said this to Andrew uh, also. You know, Andrew Andrew never really did talk to the White House uh, for the, for the book uh, uh, or for the movie. So you don't see the White House in the book at all. But it's, it's very the, Treasury centric. Hank yeah, Paulson. it's very Treasury centric. It was very focused on Treasury. Th those are the people he talked to: Treasury and the Fed and and some people on the street. And and that's fine. Like I said, it was still uh, still you know a really good effort. But that the, what I thought was just you know really funny of someone who, you know, who worked with with Hank Paulson and um, you know Hank uh, who was Treasury Secretary at the time had uh, you know William Hurt playing him in the in the movie right. Well, William Hurt in the movie is you know, buttoned up and his shirt is tucked in and his jacket's on all the time and the tie is straight and that resembled in no way the Hank Paulson I knew, right? The Hank Paulson I knew always had his shirt tail hanging out, he was carrying a Diet Coke and his tie was undone and it was a kind of a more of a messy uh, kind of character. Well, um, let me, Tony, but, let me ask you a question. Um, what I lived through during that time was what so many other folks inside uh, the West Wing uh, we're living through. It was Tony Fratto, uh, who was a liaison at the highest level between the President of the United States and Hank Paulson, who was helping to craft, uh, among other things, at a policy level, an appreciation for how we would communicate what was going on to the American public and the press. The polyoptics around that. I was every single day getting into work earlier and earlier, waiting to know what would Tony and the folks in the press office, along with the president, say, we need to make a statement today, or yeah. we're gonna be out there communicating a new element. The polyoptics of your job in communicating with the world, the street, the American people writ large, this was something that probably you didn't realize was gonna be such an important part of your job during those years. Yeah, no, uh, that's really interesting you put it that way, because I, you know, ironically, um, I was recruited over to the White House from Treasury by Tony Snow, who was press secretary at the time, and and Tony felt that you know what what was needed at the White House at that time was someone who could really help the White House communicate on uh, on really good economic issues. Right, this is in the this is in 2006, uh, spring and summer of 2006 that Tony's recruiting me. He felt that we you know we needed someone there who could uh, who could help tell the story of how strong the economy was and how well it was performing and job growth and all those kinds of things. And as it turned out, I ended up being there to, you know, to help help us communicate on what was a collapsing economy and a financial uh, crisis uh, at the, you know, for the last year of the, um, of, of our time in the, uh, in the administration. So I ended up being there for a very different job, but hopefully I think, um, you know, maybe a, a much more important contribution to, uh, to, uh, to that job uh, in a, 
you know period of crisis, which I, I was very proud to be able to play a role in helping the president and other senior White House staff and Treasury uh, communicate during that time. Again, not just to uh, an American audience in a complicated time. We talked. You, you were talking earlier about the ongoing campaign and you know how we how we dealt trying to communicate through that clutter. Uh, but also to a global audience mm -hmm. because this was a global financial crisis, not just uh, not just here in the United States. And there were you know crazy things that happened. I mean, I, I'm sure it was uh, talked about in the movie a little bit, but right? the, the you know the Hail Mary pass mm -hmm. of uh, of uh, Senator McCain uh, calling for this you know White House meeting. Uh, which is one of the more bizarre events to happen. I, I wanted <laughs> you know? to pursue that because it, it is dramatized uh, in the movie <clears throat> that folks can watch on Saturday night. But in the last hundred years history of the Republic, uh, there are just maybe a couple stretches of a few days where everything hung in the balance. You could look at December 7th, 1941. You can look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then you can look in those days in 2008. And as you started uh, your conversation with Adam and me, you, t you said how Too Big to Fail was so Treasury-centric, and yet the global stage that was open to the public as compared to Treasury, which is so much held behind closed doors and at the Fed with Bernanke and Paulson, mm -hmm. uh, you had the Roosevelt Room. And when Senator McCain decides to suspend the campaign, uh, and to travel back to Washington to hold that by to sort of crash the bipartisan meeting in the Roosevelt Room. Also, I think Senator Obama was being fully briefed, and he was involved mm -hmm. as well. Can you bring us back and paint a picture of of how uh, you and uh, the communications uh, team at the White House sort of said, "Oh my God, we're going to have the, uh, w <laughs> our 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 place of government is about to be invaded by the presidential campaign." Yeah, it was uh, it, it it was uh, it was as bizarre um, uh, an event as you can imagine for us because you're, you're absolutely right. We really were trying to deal uh, with an international financial crisis, a global financial crisis, talking to foreign leaders, talking to uh, our, you know leaders here in the United States to try to uh, first arrive at a solution to help the situation and then to try to get that solution through Congress, knowing full well that what we, what we were going to try to do in the midst of a campaign was to try to pass what will be the single most unpopular measure in the history of the republic in the middle of an election year right this is gonna be really hard to do we already had a, a tough job to do and then uh, you know this uh you know coming coming out of the blue is uh 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 senator mccain you know uh, calling for this uh this white house meeting where everything really comes to a halt and we had to try to make the best of it we didn't want to um uh you know the you know senator mccain felt that this would this could be helpful uh we didn't want to squelch that uh, we had been keeping uh, both campaigns informed uh, along the way, uh, but the meeting itself, at the end of the day, probably wasn't what uh, Senator McCain or anyone else had in mind. It didn't. It didn't really help to move the ball forward, um, but there were uh, definitely strong feelings that were aired in that room. The the uh, the story that you are recounting, uh, I want to bring in Arun Chaudhry, who uh, is with us here in studio in Washington today, Josh. Uh, somebody who's increasingly a part of our team here at Polyoptics. Arun, you were with uh, Senator Obama, uh, and you were in that meeting. No, uh, that's right. Tell us about that from your perspective. <laughs> I mean, uh, we, well, we didn't get as far as the meeting. It was quite a scene. I mean, there was the White House press corps there and McCain's press 
press corps and Senator Obama's press corps all crowded in, and most of us had never been at the White House before, you know. So we came in the Northwest Gate, which I did not know was a Northwest Gate that time, uh, and, you know, dutifully sat in front of the, the stakeout, which was just lousy with people. And I'm talking like 60, <laughs> 70, 80 people crunched in there. Right outside your window, uh, Tony right, Fratto. I was going to say, our, yeah, you're right, it was literally right outside my window. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. One of your uh, radio competitors, uh, Don Gagne from NPR, uh, uh, gave us a tour of, you know, the, the, <laughs> the press area and stuff. But what was interesting was we sat there waiting and waiting and waiting, and then our press wrangler, Katie Lilly, came out with a circle of motion over her head, and she said, we're leaving. And we said, we're leaving, what do you mean? It was like, there's no statement, there's no nothing, we're leaving, which obviously we knew was good news for our guy. But what was really interesting about it, I think, from a communication standpoint, was that was the first time I realized that the White House is someplace that, when it doesn't generate news, it is just as much news generating as when it does generate news. The deafening silence of there being no statement coming out after that meeting well, I, what I remember the failure of that meeting than anything yeah. anyone could have said. T- Tony Fratto would be in this hybrid role, and these were during times where I must admit, even uh, as deputy communications director in the White House, uh, dealing with production issues, you know, Tony has such a handle, and this is why you've been so successful with Hamilton Play Strategies here in Washington and your team and the clients that you have, Tony, uh, because you really balanced the the policy with the communications imperatives and i remember you know talk of well we need to get hank paulson out and that was outside of our purview we weren't going over to treasury to coordinate but tony fratta would put down shoe leather and would single-handedly create you know we're going to do it this way we're going to put him on the steps tony I, i just as i think back on it this is the stuff that movies are made of well look we had i think we were in a we ourselves were in a in a unique situation um and and we were fully aware of it right which is we understood that our most effective spokesperson in that situation um, needed to be hank paulson right and now we use the we use the president quite a bit we use the um the white house briefing room a lot and we would have hank come over to the briefing room we've had uh, you know I, I i briefed a lot we had other economic voices we put him out in the Kaplan. rose garden a few times i and recall we, you know, we went out to the rose garden we did uh, you know stand-ups uh, on the south lawn also uh we, you know did, did a number of statements out on the south lawn and um and you know but it was really important we thought critical for market participants uh and for other economic leaders and in that um you know very uh, politically charged environment to have Hank Paulson be the voice and to be the you know the the most important uh, the most important voice in that environment because he was seen as you know apolitical and uh, and you know it was the, the the titan of Wall Street so someone whose um, uh, opinions were you know widely respected around the world. Well, d- d- clue us in for a second. The president of the United States was very tied in. And, and very substantively involved here. This was not, as some have suggested, uh, above or beyond President Bush. Can you lay that to rest? No, look, I, you know, not everybody saw this, um, but you know, Hank and uh, Hank and President Bush, President Bush would arrive at the office. He was he was always an early um, arriver at at the um, at the Oval Office, and I, I was an early guy there too. I'd come, I'd be in at around you know five thirty in the morning. He would get into the office around six or or six fifteen. And he would, um, he would, you know, frequently he would be on the phone with Hank Paulson, or Hank Paulson would be in the Oval Office, 
at around seven o'clock every morning. They were always talking on the phone and Hank you know, with the Treasury right next door and just, you know, the alley separating Treasury and the White House. Hank would just walk over uh, to the Oval Office and, and do talk you remember to, that to morning that uh, I was doing a day in the life with ABC News? I'm sitting in the outer oval. The president is just in the Oval Office. Yeah. And what does he yell? From, and I've got the, the cameras rolling. What does he yell, Tony, from inside the Oval Office? I, I can't. I can't I'm not sure. Get Fratto on the phone! Oh, <laughs> Where's Fratto? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, we heard that more than once. Tony Fratto, I'm so excited you took some time out of your busy day to join us here on Polyoptics. We'd love to have you back and talk more about the 2012 election. We've got a jam-packed show, but uh, just being able to bring your voice to this show makes a big difference. And, and uh, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Happy to join you guys. Uh, great fun, and uh, I love listening to the show, too. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. Uh, Arun Chaudhry, the the theater of politics, the focus of our show Polyoptics, uh, is something that people are getting more and more of, a, of an insight into thanks to HBO. But it's really the practitioners and the guidance and the, and the ability to execute on presidential communications in a visual way that makes all the difference. Well, that's right. I mean, if you think about um, the scope of history that Tony has been witness to, the three Bush press secretaries, uh, Paul O'Neill, John Snow, Hank Paulson, and then transitioning into uh, the Obama administration with Tim Geithner, we've seen how Treasury secretaries tend to create and build their relationships with the president, or they don't, and they leave, uh, and how they grow in their role, and how the role of the economic team in that image, Adam, that you sketched out of the president on the bottom step of the road. Garden, surrounded by his uh, his Fed chairman, his Treasury secretary, and his uh, CEA advisors, and the, the whole team, create either an image of stability or an image that does not lend itself well to the way America wants to be seen in the world. Arun Chaudhry, uh, who joins us again uh, here on Polyoptics, had a bird's eye view to this. He's the official White House videographer. But our next guest, who's joining us here from Washington, Jen Psaki, uh, had a really unique role in the Obama administration. She was a deputy assistant to the president. She served as a deputy press secretary, the same role that uh, Tony Fratto played in the Bush White House, but then also moved over to become deputy communications director in the Obama White House. She's out in the wild, in the public sector, and joining us today on Polyoptics. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jen. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I, I wonder, I know you heard a little bit of the conversation we were having uh, with, with Tony Fratto, but talk to us for a second, even as you, you sort of think back to your days in the campaign and, and your work with Arun Chaudhry, uh, about how important ultimately it is to be able to deliver on the promise of communicating visually uh, around these issues and putting either the candidate or the president in a place where people can relate both to the issues and to the man. Well, I hate to say this, but a picture is almost is more valuable many times than words are. So if you think of the way people get their news and digest their news, oftentimes it's a glance at the front of a newspaper on a busy morning while they're trying to eat breakfast and get their kids ready for school. Or they're watching, you know, there have been all these uh, 
you know, studies about how many people watch the news with the sound off. So, um, you know, this is such an important part of communicating. Um, and it was something that uh, it's something that on the presidential level, there's a whole team of people who focus on a run who um, and I spent a great deal of time together the on truth. the campaign trail. We wrecked many pieces of luggage together. Yes, we wrecked many pieces of luggage together, went on many tours of factories together. Um, and he his role really broke new ground as technology changes. So do the opportunities and the ways that you can use visuals. And that's been actually a really exciting and challenging part of communications and being in, in the communications role in, in a level like the White House. I think what was actually really, really uh, good on the campaign and continuing to the White House was just, I think it's not just the first time technology had caught up, but the first time someone like me was as close to someone like you physically. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think normally you have these film guys, they come in, they don't know who to ask the questions to, they don't know, you know. But here, literally, I could turn to the next person in the next seat in the plane and be like, hey, can you explain this to me? I don't understand how this policy works. How You know, I'm trying to make a movie about this, and the right person would be right there. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and not only did Arun and I and still do like each other a lot, so that always helps, but, you know, I think we felt, and when I worked on the Obama campaign and also in the White House, there was a huge value for visuals and uh, the role that Arun played. And I think a, har a challenge that you always try to figure out when you're working on a campaign or, you're, or especially when you're working in a White House is how do you show that this candidate or this president or this person is a real person? Uh, you know, they have emotions. They laugh. They cry. They uh, they feel passionately about events that happen in the day, and um, you know the role of run played really enabled us to do that, uh, kind of show the human side and and open the door to what happens every day that most people don't get to see because they see the president behind a podium or they see him giving a speech, but that's not everything that happens in the building. But let me put uh, both you, Jen, and Iran on the spot a sure. little bit, um, which is uh, that. And Adam and I have talked about this many times, which is that when Ronald Reagan was president and then George H.W. Uh, Bush uh, yep. were in the White House, they, they often did that exact uh, venue, the, the speech at the Washington Hilton in, uh, behind the Blue Goose. And what we developed in the Clinton years, basically looking at what step and repeat patterns were doing in the world yep. of professional sports, was that... <clears throat> For that very reason, Jen, that people watch the news with the sound off so often, and the president has to give these speeches anyway. What I've what I saw in the early years was many opportunities when you would uh, get in the vans, go off to Andrews, get an Air Force One, fly three thousand miles, and it may as well have been the Washington Hilton because. In the White House, there wasn't that communications directive to say at the speech, give us, give the viewers at home the visual cues about where he is and what his mm -hmm. message is, because people are watching with the sound off. And Pfeiffer has said on a couple of occasions that, hey, we're not trying to be Michael Deaver here. And yet these are the basic tricks that any president or candidate on the national stage has to do because mm -hmm. it isn't all going to be West Wing week. You're going to have to communicate through the evening newscast and the cable nets. You're, you know, you're absolutely right, and, and I think you raise a really important point in that I do think that the White House, the current White House, got better at it as it went along. Uh, because in the beginning, as you know, you're figuring out what are your limitations. You know, you have limitations like security and size and all of these things. But as time went on, I think 
as time has gone on, I think the events and the visuals that you refer to have gotten better. You've seen the president, you know, standing more with on the factory line. You've seen him more on the floor with auto workers um, and, and visuals like that because I completely agree that visual that you provide or that you make happen that, that the news networks use um, and use on the evening news is vitally important. And whether you accomplish that or not is, is often the definition of whether the day was successful and whether that trip across country was worth it or not. And, and it's even on display this week. The president goes to North Carolina to a, I think, a Chrysler truck plant or a GM truck plant. Mm-hmm. He's riding this beautiful wave of the auto bailout having been a tremendous success and realizing that he, he can't go and give the speech at the Detroit Economic Club either in a hotel ballroom or, God forbid, Ford Field. He should do that on the factory, for, factory right. floor. I do think there's one difference um, that I think anybody who worked for, I would think, for for President Reagan or President Clinton would acknowledge, and that is that the appetite and access of information is very different now than it was 10 years ago, 20 years, certainly 30 years ago. So there is often, well, millions of people still watch the evening news, and that visual is vitally important. Um, You know, what appears on the front of the newspaper, what appears on the evening news. There is also the issue of when people go online, where so many people get their news now, and they're looking for information. Do we are we providing? Are we reaching those people? And you know that's I think a, a journey and an area where the current president and people who played the you know a runs role and people who have uh, worked in that area have had to really think creatively and, and try some things that worked and try some things that didn't work and uh, and figure out how to make sense of that medium as well. And that's what I was trying to get at before. I think it's trying things at the presidential level is like so so scary. So something very simple like you know. We'd want to do the weekly address not in a stale, you know, room in the White House. We want to do it out in the road. Well, all of a sudden, you don't have any control, you know. So the first time we did that, we were, you know, on the Gulf Coast, and it was going to be horribly backlit, and there was nothing we could do about it, and it rained, and the lights weren't working. But, you know, you need to have the confidence, I think, in just your ability as a filmmaker to be like, we're going to take a chance. It's going to look a little gritty. It's going to look a little raw. And consistently, including, I think, the president, that's our favorite weekly address. Well, you all had a blessing in in Barack Obama. He seems to have uh, an ability to adapt to situations like taping some of this stuff. I mean, literally... Well, we we think about the, the the that Saturday address, and we've talked about this, Jen, so many times on Polyoptics here on Sirius XM one twenty four, uh, because for Josh King in the Clinton administration, for Adam Belmar in the Bush administration, this was purely radio. It was something that was very quick and very easy. And then from a POTUS management perspective, just taking the president's time to get involved in video production, you know, now you're on the road and the boss has probably got no appetite. I know that President Bush had no appetite for something like this. But but President Obama played along and, and he reaped the benefits of it ultimately, I think. Yeah, you would not describe him as stoked, you know, when we come rolling in Friday, you know, night wanting to to, to Was he looking at Jen things, going, but... Why are we doing this? <laughs> no, he knew why we were there. I know? think that's the question that every president asks. Why am I doing this? What is <laughs> yeah. this for? Because their schedules are all so brutal all the time. <laughs> Uh, but I do think, to your point, he has adapted and had to adapt in many ways. I mean, you know, the fact that he has a Twitter account and he did a Twitter town hall and, you know, we went to Facebook and he did the town hall there. And these are things that, you know, a lot of presidential candidates on both sides of the aisle are doing now. But it is different, as run touched on. Every time you try to do something new and different in the White House, it is 
you know the bureaucracy is is crazy <laughs> it's, it's red tape and then some so uh that's been a challenge but also kind of uh, i think an exciting part uh of the experience for many of the people who have been a part of this white house just because of what we're going through with transitions in the media and how people get information and technology and things like that it is a huge affirmation of of polyoptics in general to have you jen so recently serving in the white house having had uh, such an impact on the communication strategies for President Obama uh, talking to us today about the things that you recognize through your experience and sort of your intuition uh, about what works and, and the value of a picture, the ability to communicate with people in their daily lives who so often are only going to catch a glance of the morning paper. They may even be watching the news with the sound down. But Josh King and I were talking just uh, earlier, uh, before we even went on the air today, that uh, now that you're out of the White House, you have remained um, involved in the political conversation. And and one example of that is a piece that you posted uh, in the Huffington Post this week around a... uh, uh, a kerfuffle. I think it's even bigger than a kerfuffle. <laughs> a, a run. It, it, it rises above kerfuffle. Adam. It is a bigger than a kerfuffle. Is it an outrage? <laughs> Depends on where you sit or where you stand on this issue. But what we're talking about, folks, is the, uh, the 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 topic of contraception, whether it should be covered uh, under um, health care. Specifically, we're talking about this whole event uh, in testimony by Sandra Fluke from Georgetown University, a law student. Uh, she made her comments known. Uh, Rush Limbaugh viciously attacked her, berated her personally, subsequently apologized. And before we get into the substance of the communication around this, let's listen to what she had to say on The View from this week. Initially, I was, of course, shocked and, and stunned. I, I think any woman who has ever been called these types of names is at first. But then I, I tried to see this for what it is. And, and I believe that what it is is an attempt to silence me, to silence the millions of women and the men who support them who have been speaking out about this issue and conveying that contraception is an important health care need that they need to have met in an affordable, accessible way. So, Jen Saki, there's two things that I ask coming out of listening to uh Sandra on The View. One is we're talking about new types of communication techniques, Mm -hmm. and I think we saw one earlier this week, and that is a White House who considers, let's say, Rush Limbaugh as as a rival. And Rush Limbaugh, who who does his show every day from Florida, almost is impenetrable as long as he stays safe in what he says, or at least thinks through what he's about to say. But if you're looking at the story of Achilles or the story of uh, the Allies' march through Italy in World War II, you're always looking for a weakness. And it seemed like the White House found one, and they also found their weapon, which is the presidential phone call. And then the presidential phone call, which is briefed on background to reporters. Can you—I know you're out of the White House, Mm -hmm. so can you describe what might have happened this week with the president's call and and whether that was sort of a standard— MO for him or a unique opportunity to say, let's go? Uh, I would say that he is somebody who has on occasion 
called people, Sandra Fluke is of course a perfect example, who have been in the public eye because they've experienced a tragedy, because they've been attacked, because they need support, something that touches him. And I think that her story, Rush Limbaugh's side, it, it doesn't even matter, it could have been anyone who was attacking her who was a public figure. It didn't have to be Rush Limbaugh, of course, it adds to the story, certainly. But anyone really felt compassion for her as she was, as this was happening in the initial stages. Now, she has shown herself to be incredibly well-poised, prepared, as if she's been speaking publicly for decades. So I think, uh, you know, she's an incredibly uh, impressive woman. Um, but I would say, you know, this is a case where, um, you know, where, where, you know, some Republicans, some in the Republican Party, I would include Rush Limbaugh on that, have overstepped the issue, right? And so on the politics of it, which I know we're not exactly talking about, um, it kind of brought the issue to light. It brought Rush Limbaugh's comments to light and made them represent a larger feeling in the country. You know, I think in this case, you know, it was very public, as you remember, the day that Rush Limbaugh made these comments. There were lots of stories about it. People were talking about it. And I'm sure what probably happened is somebody who worked for the president or even the president himself, it's happened both ways, went to him and said, you know, maybe you should call this young woman. And he did. And, um, you know, then, then they let the press know. Of course, she went on TV right after that and talked about it as well. Um, so, um, you know, I think it is he's showing public support for her. Um, I think it's something she clearly appreciated. And it is also showing people around the country that he's paying attention. And he knows uh, he, he, he is watching and he is, uh, is, is kind of taking in uh, what's happening out there um, in, in many sort of mediums. And, and he does pay attention. You know, he reads uh, not just the New York Times. You know, he reads blogs. He, he reads all sorts of things. Um, and that, that is, I think, the case, uh, you know, uh, being a modern president, I guess. You know, we don't talk so much about the the, the politics here, but in your piece, which I, I mentioned as we turn to this, Jen, and I want you to give voice to it, mm-hmm. uh, was, was very effective at just bringing out the facts about this topic. And take a second to, to, to share your point of view on this. Sure, and I appreciate the opportunity. I mean, I think the reason why this issue has touched so many people, I mean, I make no secret of the fact that I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal Democrat, I would say, probably. But, you know, is that independent women, women who are Republicans, were, were impacted by this, and, and men, too, because it felt um, like it was it was a, touching on an issue that has been accepted as a part of what should be provided as, as a part of health care for women. Um, so, you know, I think... Uh, in my, the reason I wrote that is because I um, because I know many people who um, take birth control who have been uh, uh, who have been um, prescribed birth control by doctors because they need it for other health reasons um, you know and that is uh, you know and the other piece of this is that it is um, it, it, it was an issue that that felt like it was uh, it was overstepping um, kind of what should be a part of the political debate in some ways because um, because you know women across the country a vast majority of women have been uh, have been using birth control have been prescribed birth control as a part of this for decades and so it was almost taking a reversal uh, to where we had already made a great deal of progress um, but it is I think what people were missing in the debate was that it was not about, it shouldn't have been about, and I, I know why it was about, the Catholic Church. It was about what 
we should be providing, what, what organizations, what companies, what employers should be providing in terms of, of access to affordable health care to men and women. This case was about women. Um, and so that's why I think for me it was such an important issue to speak out on. But I think for, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks for many, many people across the country. Jen and Arun, switching gears here. Jen, you've been with Barack Obama, sent with Senator Barack Obama from early 2007 until the very last days of 2011 as a member of his campaign staff and then in the White House. Mm-hmm. Arun, Arun, you 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 logged so many miles with him during the campaign and the White House and were such an innovator in how the White House gets its message out using new technologies. You guys both have bid farewell to your friends uh, and to the president and gone off uh, and walked out of the gates of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with a blue pass for the last time, one one might think. Don't remind us. And, <laughs> and, and, and here and here comes a re-election campaign, a re-election campaign that promises uh, so much, uh, so many interesting twists and turns, but the wind is at the president's back, and then four more years to realize... Uh, potentially if he wins uh, the vision that he has for the country. How hard is it for both of you to get off the train and watch this going on from the outside? It's a question that Adam and I got so many times when we left the White House, and I'm wondering how much it stings today. It's so hard. Jen, do you read all the poll reports? I know I do. (laughs) It is incredibly hard. I mean, as you guys know, it is one of the most rewarding, amazing incredible experiences that you know I've ever had and I would say anybody who's worked for any president um, probably has ever had and uh, you know sometimes it's it's time to get off the hamster wheel and do something else but you know I am where I am because of you know taking a chance and going to work for Senator Barack Obama five years ago and I'm incredibly grateful for that and um, it is it is it is challenge it is sometimes challenging of course to watch it from the outside because you think I wonder what they're saying I wonder what they're thinking about I wonder you know what's happening on the campaign and of course Arun and I both have many many friends and former oh, yeah. colleagues who are still there that that we can pick up the phone and talk to so that's great but there's a difference between that and as you said having the blue pass and being there and working as a part of the team every day. yeah when you're back and all of a sudden people turn away from you to have those conversations instead of turning away from other people to have those conversations right. with you, it's you very different. Give all of your personal information to get into the building and be escorted around. Which yeah, all like of a sudden you're thing. the subject that uh, that uh, comes around with. Who is this woman? We're putting her through waves. What's her yeah. social security number? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, listen. Exactly. Uh, Jen Saki, you know, is is very busy. She is the managing director of Global Strategy Group. She is a senior vice president there, leading the Washington office. You have landed on your feet, and you are sharing uh, your insights and strategy as a communicator uh, with your clients, and still a part of the conversation. Washington, we're lucky to have you today on it Polyoptics. Was my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you both. Well, Josh, uh, we've had a lively show today, but uh, in what is becoming a, a regular segment of Reading the Pictures, we are joined now by the founder, the editor, the prolific writer at Bag News Notes, Michael Shaw. Welcome back to Polyoptics. Hey, Adam. Hey, Josh. I'm uh, proud to help put the uh, optics in uh, Polyoptics. So. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, one of the things that we do in this segment, Josh, is we have a chance to take a look at uh, some of the imagery uh, in politics that's out there and driving the conversation. And uh, 
one of the things, Michael, I want you to start with today is take us for a ride. The cover of The New Yorker, the March issue of The New Yorker, uh, depicts Mitt Romney in a vehicle with who on the top in a dog case? <laughs> Rick Santorum. <laughs> what does this say, and what do you think about this this image coming out in the week of Super Tuesday? Well, I think that the image really did rise to the surface this week. Uh, just to describe it really briefly, you've got a Romney in a car. It's um, an illustration. It's quite cartoonish by Bob Stake uh, and uh, Bob Stack. And uh, yeah, it's got the, a doghouse um, tied to the roof of the car, and Rick Santorum uh, looking quite nervous, uh, peering out the front. And uh, I think that it's doing a, a couple of things. I mean, it's interesting that it not only came out right before Super Tuesday. But also, like, at the same time that the Romney uh, campaign was kind of unrolling its new product model, the kind of warmer, fuzzier mitt. Uh, and so this thing really, uh, I think, does a couple of things. To me, it cements the pooch on the roof as really the central flaw in the Romney persona and universalizes that event, just brings it up to, like, the, the highest level. And then... Um, I think what it also does is it's, it's because it's Romney in the car, and Romney's always taking us back to Detroit and the auto industry and the connection, and that's his connection, supposed connection to the American working class. I think it kind of blows a hole a little bit or raises questions about that connection also. So um, I, I think it's kind of working at, uh, at some like very conscious levels and at some unconscious levels. Josh, what's your take? Well, <laughs> I, I I am so amused by this, and and the only person who seems to be more amused by this is one, my son Toby, which I'll explain in a second, and two, Gail Collins, the columnist for the New York Times, who who can't stop writing about this story. This story goes back to the mid nineteen eighties. Mitt Romney, you know, and his wife Anne have five sons, and it's difficult to pack five kids in in a station wagon, let alone a dog named Seamus. And so the story, as the story goes, and as a Boston Globe reporter originally. Uh, found out that on a trip to Canada one year, uh, Mitt Romney took his dog Seamus and put him in a dog crate, uh, a kennel, strapped it to the top of the uh, of the station wagon and drove north to Canada. About halfway there, the dog starts to <laughs> starts to get diarrhea, and suddenly the, the Romney family vehicle is is uh, is in a state of uh, of. Uh, of uncleanliness and this just mit- smacks of the imagery of family vacation and chevy chase tying the dog uh leash to the back bumper of the car and driving off down the highway and, and so the, as the story goes uh uh mitt romney pulls over uh slaps on some galoshes grabs a hose and hoses the car and the dog down wipes himself off and gets back into the drive and that's and that's sort of described by gail collins and others as typical romney crisis management and you know it, that that image that that uh, Michael uh, talked about in the New Yorker made such an impact in the King household. My son Toby, seven years old, asked to understand the whole story, and then wrote a book report on it and drew pictures <laughs> and is drawing pictures of Romney with with Rick Santorum and Seamus above the car together. It's fascinating. Wow. So Michael Shaw, uh, the New Yorker is not alone in uh, in capturing and in, in, in illustrating this moment in politics. It really has been some. Let's let's move on because I want to drive the conversation here towards um, 
a homecoming that we are seeing play out. Uh, we've got two pictures that you're going to talk to us about, uh, and they really begin to broach, at least in a visual way, some of the, the, the elements of how we are dealing with same-sex marriage in this country, how we are dealing with uh, homosexuality in the military. Talk to us about these images. Of course, you can see them on our website at polyoptics.com if you haven't already seen them at Bag News Notes. But Michael, set both of these up and, and, and juxtapose them and their significance for us. Yeah, uh, I would say, if you ask me, that we were due, that the culture was due for a gay male homecoming kiss, something to hit the media and to really uh, express to the country that we're in a new era, post don't ask, don't tell. And the, that era aro- uh, kind of uh, uh, came uh, uh, to be and was expressed, uh, I think, in a pretty subtle way, exactly a week after the uh, Don't Don't Ask, Don't Tell was lifted by what was actually a military-sponsored photo taken in Virginia Beach. This is back Uh, in December of last year. Back in December, right. It was an embrace uh, on the dock, uh, and it it really documented the ritual first kiss. And by lottery, the the, the military holds a lottery to see which couple is going to be the one that the gets gets to be the have the ceremonial first kiss, and it turned out and uh, strategically I believe that they chose um, two naval officers, one who was uh, just um, arrived uh, from overseas and one who was already home, uh, in this embrace, and it was so it was sort of that l- lesbian show of affection, uh, and it di- and it and it got some media attention, but nothing like what happened. Uh, this is about two weeks ago now. When we had this photo of uh, of um, Sergeant Brandon Morgan uh, embracing his partner Dalen Wells in a helicopter hangar uh, at a Marine base in Hawaii. And now let's really break this down, okay? Because you know, you know, you you kind of buried the lead. This first picture going back to December was two women, yes. both officers in the United States Navy, correct? Yes. Here we have a civilian and a uniformed Marine in a hangar with a big giant garrison flag, American flag in the background. And what do we see, Michael? In the foreground, what you see is Sergeant Morgan having jumped into the arms of his uh, civilian uh, partner of four years, David Wells, and having completely wrapped his legs around uh, Wells uh, off the ground. Uh, the two are kissing, and, the, and in the background, they're framed by that giant flag. Around his neck, you also see uh, this uh, flowered lei that uh, you would find there in uh, in Hawaii, where this took place. Really, what we're seeing is a marine uh, in uniform taking what might be uh, in a more conventional picture, uh, sort of a woman's role of sort of jumping up on her man and maybe wrapping her arms around him in this embrace. But what the, what we're seeing, Josh, is is uh, is is the marine in this position, and it really makes you think for a second. It's 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 arresting. It's it's a it's a shocking photograph, uh, in the in the sense that it it really brings this whole issue of hey, it's in your face. What do you think now well, about gay relationships in the military? Yeah, and I th- but it's about something more too, Adam. I think there are in our history iconic moments that are captured on film that define who we are as a country and the time and the place that the culture uh, is at. 
And I think that the reason why this picture of uh, the two Marines and the prior picture of uh, the two sailors, in one case men, in another case women, is so arresting is because that for people who have a certain wide range of images in their unconscious, you think back to, I think, August 14th, 1945, Alfred Eisenstadt, the great photographer, is walking through Times Square, and victory over Japan has just been declared, and he's carrying his Leica camera around his shoulder, and he's just looking, and he sees this nurse in a white uniform, and sees the crowds coming out into the streets because this great moment in the Great War is coming to a conclusion, and there's a sailor in a black uniform, and he's coming down the street in 7th Avenue, and he's kissing anyone he can, and he finds this one woman, a nurse, eventually her name was identified, and he wraps his arms around her, bends her over backward, and snap. Eisenstadt gets that photo. It's called VJ Day in Times Square. And that, for decades, defined the joy of homecoming and what it was like for our men and women in uniform to come home, find their loved ones, or just express their joy. Fast forward 60 years, and you have a culture very much changed in which uh, homosexual men and women serve in our armed forces and their loved ones are at home and these two embrace pictures that Mike Shaw has has brought to our attention this week are in many is in many ways just a recast of that famous Eisenstadt photo from 1945 yeah, although I, I, I agree with that and it really does evoke the Times Square kiss what's maybe interesting here though is that for as long as this this issue has been suppressed it's possible that this picture really like blows it out way in the other direction i mean as as josh was saying i mean as um adam was saying this is a pretty sexually suggestive picture i mean it's really like these guys are grinding you know uh, in the in the air i mean if they were on their back this would be like an x-rated photo so it's it's really pushing it in that direction and then when you have that large a f- uh, flag uh framing that this that kind of action you know it's like the symbolism of patriotism juxtaposed so dramatically with homosexuality. They were talking, WAPO, uh, Washington Post interviewed a, a second-year soldier at the U.S. Academy, and they asked him what he thought about the photo. He said, I'm absolutely for gays in the military, but my first impression of this photo is that it wasn't professional. I wonder if professional, in this case, a little bit code for just how far that the, the picture is you know, emphasizing that we're in a, in a new era. I, I love the way that you just framed that, Michael. And I love that you brought at Bag News Notes these uh, pictures forward uh, because you have to explore your own personal feelings on this issue. And I would guarantee you, everyone who's listening to Polyoptics today here on Sirius XM 124 on POTUS, go to polyoptics.com. Go to Bag News Notes. You will find these pictures. How you think about it in theory will be greatly changed by how you think about it in reality when you see what your visceral reaction is to this photograph. And it begins to help all of us understand what civil rights are about, what the rights of individuals, uh, especially when we're talking about homosexuality and the military, now you have to look at it. Now you have to understand that they have every right to be uh, joyful 
and excited to be reunited with their loved ones. But you know what? This is what it looks like. Yeah. And this is something we all need to begin to appreciate. It, it, it's not just words. It's not just philosophy. This is what it all comes down to. We've brought our men and our women home from war, and they're reunited. And this is what some of those reunifications look like. Michael Shaw, uh, we do this now as often as we can with you, uh, looking at the photographs, reading them. Uh, I commend Bag News Notes to every single person who listens to Polyoptics. We're grateful for your time. And you know what? When Polyoptics uh, hit the air, you were right there for us at the beginning. You are today. Uh, thanks for being a part of this team. My pleasure. I really enjoy it. So, Adam, Tony Fratto, uh, Jen Saki, Arun Chaudhry, Michael Shaw, this was a full week on Polyoptics. It's going to be a big weekend for those who, uh, who have HBO uh, watching um, Game Change tonight at 9 p.m. Uh, and then as we go into next week, the Obama campaign, the Obama administration is putting out its own movie, aren't they? They are. We've got a 17-minute video that just once again points out how critically important polyoptics and the visual communication uh, of, of our theater of politics is to the campaign trail. And this has been one of my favorite shows, Josh. We are quickly approaching our 50th episode, something very special planned for that episode. But uh, thank you as always for leading the charge here at Polyoptics. Thanks, Adam. See you next week.